Um, I'm going to pray and ask for God's help as we come to his words. Now let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your great kindness to us in revealing uh, to us your word. Uh, we know that your word, uh, the word you give us each week is a word that is good for us, helpful uh, for growing us in our faith and making uh, your gospel known. Uh, may that happen tonight, Father. May we grow in our faith through your word. May the gospel be proclaimed clearly. And please help me as I seek to teach this passage faithfully now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's always nice uh, to discover a right or an entitlement that you never knew you had. Um, perhaps you have experienced this in maybe your job or Centrelink. Um, in my early years of ministry, before I went to Bible college, uh, I remember discovering that guest preachers were entitled to something that the Presbyterian denomination calls pulpit supply. A pulpit supply is a nominal fee given to a visiting preacher as a kind of way of acknowledging his ministry to that particular congregation on that Sunday. I actually didn't know that that existed until I preached in another church and then received this check following the service. And look, I certainly wasn't opposed to this right, particularly in those earlier days when things were quite financially tight. But on one particular Sunday, after preaching and, then, and also leading at another church, uh, the elder in charge came to chat to me about pulpit supply. And the conversation kind of went different than what I had experienced. Instead of saying, you know, thank you for preaching, here's your pulpit supply, it was, thank you for preaching, would you like us to give you pulpit supply? So if he had just given it to me, I would have been... I would have happily received it. If he hadn't given it to me, I would have been like, okay, that's fine too. It was the question that got me. Suddenly I had to think about it. The onus was on me to decide. And so I was thinking, like, was it wrong to take the fee? Or, or did this guy's question kind of imply that it was somehow yeah, a bit shady, a bit greedy, a bit wrong? If I had the right to the pulpit supply... Did that mean I should use the right? See, how would you have responded in that moment? Would you have been more in the kind of, yes, thanks, and here's my bank details camp, or, no, of course not. I would never, have, I would never take that. Which one would you do? Do you think in that moment you would have a response that was biblical honouring to Jesus, and not swayed by social pressure one way or the other, do you think you would have a response ready like that? Because truth be told, I didn't. I was caught off guard, and I actually ended up refusing the money, but it wasn't because of any deep biblical or gospel conviction. It was simply a reaction to the social pressure of the moment. I didn't want him to think poorly of me. You see, that moment exposed in my life the need to think deeply about two things, what the Bible actually says about provision of gospel workers and what the Bible says about rights and entitlements generally, not just as a preacher, but as a Christian. Do I always use my rights simply because I have them? Why would I? Why wouldn't I? 
And see, these are the two big questions that Paul is addressing in our passage tonight. Through his own personal example, Paul helps us to think about uh, the rights that gospel workers have to receive material provision from their ministry labor. But he also helps us to think generally about why a believer might give up their rights, whatever they are, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of having other people hear about Jesus and believe in him. So I've broken the sermon into two points, really. If you've got an outline, you'll see it there. Titled, The Rights Paul Had and The Rights Paul Relinquished. They're the two things we're going to think about. So let's look at the first one, The Rights Paul Had. Now, it's probably worth pausing to actually think about why Paul suddenly starts speaking about the rights that are due to him as a preacher of the gospel. Uh, You might remember from last week in chapter 8 that Paul has just been teaching the Corinthians that though they had certain freedoms, certain rights as believers, their love for others uh, means that they don't always exercise those rights and freedoms. I remember the question wasn't, I have the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols, therefore I will eat meat. No, it's, though I have the right to eat, should I? Will it build up my brother and sister? Or will it tear them down through unnecessary distress and confusion? Paul was actually teaching the Corinthians to let love be the guiding principle on the question of rights. And so in chapter 9, in our passage, Paul gives the Corinthians a kind of personal illustration of that principle by speaking of his own willingness to give up rights that belong to him, that right to material provision as a gospel worker. But it seems that some in the Corinthian church either didn't know or perhaps didn't quite believe that Paul was actually really entitled to those rights. In the first place, they perhaps assumed that his willingness to work to support himself perhaps was a sign that he wasn't actually entitled to those rights. I mean, you can understand that. It's not usual to see someone working a second job, as Paul did, if they don't technically need to. But for the Corinthians to see the cost Paul paid, they actually had to know the rights that he had. Uh, Recently, our eldest daughter came to me with an open laptop that had a picture of a dog on the front of it and was entitled, Why I Should Get a Dog. (laughs) And she said, Dad, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm making a PowerPoint presentation um, that's going to have slide after slide outlining all my reasons why you should get us a dog. Uh, And I can imagine it's going to be hard to argue with her by the time that PowerPoint is complete. But you see, I think something similar is going on here with Paul. It's like he comes to the Corinthians with a presentation of reason after reason as to why he was entitled to material support for his ministry among them. And there are four reasons kind of Paul gives in his presentation to prove that this was actually his right. Here they are, his status as an apostle, preacher of the gospel, the principle of natural justice, the law of God, the command of Christ. They're the four reasons. Let's look at each one of them. So first, Paul tells the Corinthians that he had a right to receive provision 
because he too was an apostle, someone who preached the gospel full-time, someone, according to verse 14, who had the right to earn his living from that ministry. See, look at verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus our Lord? See, Paul may not have been one of the original 12 apostles, but he still was an apostle. He had seen the risen Jesus. He'd been saved by the risen Jesus on that road to Damascus. And then he'd been commissioned by the risen Jesus to preach the gospel to the nations. But Paul's basically saying here, but don't just take my word for it. Just look at the evidence of my apostleship, which speaks for itself. Look at your church, Corinthians. Might I remind you that it was founded on the message that I brought to you all that time ago. Look at verse 1 again. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord, even though I may not be an apostle to others? Surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. It's like Paul saying, well, others can think what they like about me, but you guys, you guys who were there from the beginning, know that I am a true apostle. For you were saved, you were changed through my preaching about Christ. And you know that preaching was obviously accompanied by the Spirit's work. And we know that from chapter 2, don't we, where Paul says, My preaching and my message were not with wise or persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Paul is making it clear that because he's a true, a legitimate apostle, he was actually entitled to the same rights as the other apostles. That's what he says in verse 3, isn't it? My defense to those of you, uh, to those who sit in judgment on me, don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, Peter? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? A couple of double negatives at the end. Put it another way, is it only I and Barnabas who have to work for a living, a second job? See, Paul, like the other apostles, had the right to be materially supported in his ministry from the Corinthians. He had the right to food and drink from among them. He had the right to be put up in someone's home. He had the right to financial provision where need be. If he had a wife, he, she too would have presumably had the right to be provided for, just like Cephas's, Peter's wife. So that's the first basis of his rights. He was an apostle who preached the gospel for a living and thus was entitled to receive a living from that ministry. But second, Paul appeals to the principle of natural justice as a basis for his right to receive a living. Uh, natural justice is that kind of instinct that we all have that something is just morally right or fair. Uh, there is a sense of natural justice when you see the kid who studies, get the good grades, a sense of natural justice when you see the convicted murderer be put behind bars. Look at the example Paul gives in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink its milk? See, natural justice says all those things would be wrong. Soldiers have the right to be paid. They don't have to pay to put their life on the line. It's the same for the vineyard worker and the shepherd. Natural justice says that if they've put in the effort, 
to plant the vineyard or to tend their flocks, they should actually be enjoyed, entitled to enjoy the fruit of that labor. And you kind of know this if you're a veggie grower like I am. If you grow the tomatoes, you kind of instinctively know that you have a right to eat those tomatoes because you've gone into the effort to grow them. Paul is saying that natural justice kind of demands that those who minister in the gospel should likewise find sustenance from those whom they minister to. It's, it's the principle at play here in Galatians 6, chapter 6, where Paul says, let the one who is taught, taught the word, share all good things with the teacher. Now, you can imagine that this principle has been twisted, abused by some pastors in some places who kind of wield it as a means to fleece their congregation and get rich. Now, I've seen, uh, been in churches uh, where the offering bucket is passed around numerous times in the service, and it's kind of awkward to watch. Uh, there's something off about that image of the kind of the wealthy mega pastor who lives in a mansion, an actual pastor's mansion, who lives in a mansion so far above where the rest of the congregation's at. But notice the imagery used in verse 7. It's not a picture of riches, but of meeting one's kind of basic needs, isn't it? It's a living wage for a common soldier. Uh, it's food and drink for the vineyard owner and the shepherd. Uh, now, the idea of what a living wage for gospel workers is, I think, will actually just vary from context to context based on different kind of cost of living factors. But the fact remains that preaching the gospel is never described in the Bible as a means to make money, legitimately. The, the truth is that gospel workers, when acting faithfully, actually from observation too, often forego much higher paid jobs or career paths in order to preach Christ. And I wonder if sometimes we forget that gospel workers should be treated fairly when it comes to their support. Uh, I remember receiving an email from a, another gospel worker in another ministry context asking whether we would consider slightly increasing our giving to them to keep up with CPI, it's that consumer price index, cost of living. Uh, how would you have responded to that email if you received it? Uh, would there be a slight temptation to kind of get a little bit cynical in that moment? Do they really need that? I mean, after all, they're not in it for the money, are they? Can't they cope? I think actually the principle of natural justice at play here tells us that perhaps like other workers in the church, occasionally their living should increase as well to keep up with cost of living demands. And actually the only way for that to happen is for them to humbly ask their, support, their supporters. But providing for gospel work is not just something that Paul thinks is right, it's actually commanded in the law of God, our third point. Look at verse 8. Do I merely say this on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain. Now I suspect some of you are sitting there thinking Paul's choice of Old Testament quotes is an interesting one. 
What has muzzling an ox got to do with the rights of a preacher? Maybe he knows that sometimes we want to put a muzzle on our preachers. Uh, But the quote comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And actually, even in that part of the law, in Deuteronomy, the kind of sudden reference to oxen seems to come out of a bit of nowhere there as well. Until we realize that the principle embedded in that verse is actually serving the greater theme of justice and fairness that runs all through the series of laws given in Deuteronomy chapter 25 that relate to Israel's life and community. See, God had decreed that even the household ox had basic rights. A stingy farmer wasn't who was eager to save that last bit of grain was not allowed to muzzle his ox so that it couldn't even lick up a bit of grain while going through the hard work of grinding it in flour. So again, we see that principle which Paul has been appealing to throughout this chapter at play. The one who labors has the right to share in the fruit of that labor. And thus, read in light of Christ, Paul sees in that Old Testament verse a very rich application to workers of the gospel. You see that in verse 9. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, it was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? See, the principle is the one who labors has rights to share in the fruit of that labor. We should think, why should men and women who are in vocational gospel ministry be denied a right that even the ox is given? Are they not more valuable to God? Are they not more valuable to us? They too need to be sustained and provided for. So Paul says his right to material provision was, is based on his status as an apostle, preacher of the gospel, the principle of natural justice, Old Testament law, but finally, the command of Christ. And you see that in verses 13 and 14 of your Bibles. Now, don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from their temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. See, Jesus carries into the New Testament a principle that had been in play in the old. Just as priests had the right to share in the food from the temple in which they serve, so now preachers of the gospel have rights to receive sustenance from their service in the gospel. Jesus' people are called by Jesus to make sure gospel workers and their families, which we get from Peter's example earlier, to make sure that they're not left destitute in their service. Uh, We see Jesus actually articulating this principle uh, in the gospel, in Matthew and in Luke, when he sends out the 72 in pairs to preach about the kingdom of God in the different towns and villages. And he actually tells those workers in verse 4 of that passage not to carry a money bag, you might remember, but instead to stay as a guest of someone, to eat and drink what they offer. Now, why does Jesus say this? Because the worker is worthy of his wages, Jesus says. 
These people who are coming and preaching, they're not freeloaders, but workers in the gospel. And generally speaking, their living comes from those to whom they are ministering. So just to zoom out a bit, Paul is saying to the Corinthians that he had a legitimate right to material provision from them. This was a right based on his status as an apostle, principle of natural justice, Old Testament law, and the command of Christ. It is really hard to argue with Paul's presentation here. But before we move on and consider why Paul actually passed up that right, it's worth actually thinking about how we are going applying the general principle that remains true for us today. You see, though Paul did not receive a living from the Corinthian church, which we're going to think about soon, we know that he actually did receive support from other churches. We know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You see, what Paul does in Corinth actually seems to be somewhat of an exception, not the rule. So let's think about how we're going applying the rule that he speaks of. Now, at one level, which I should have probably mentioned earlier, this is completely awkward to talk about. It's an awkward subject for a preacher to be talking about providing for preachers in many ways. And you might even think that there's a bit of a conflict of interest going on here. So on the one hand, I do feel that degree of awkwardness, right, talking about this issue. But on the other hand, I am called to preach the word of God. We're doing 1 Corinthians. We're up to chapter 9. And so I have to preach on passages that I feel awkward about sometimes because it's my responsibility to teach and apply that faithfully. So with that said, here's some thoughts at this point in the passage. Uh, The first is that we need to understand that supporting gospel workers is not only good in that it frees them up to work in the gospel, but that it is actually, um, but that it is actually an act of service to Christ. Uh, it's good because it's part of your discipleship. See, Jesus hasn't suggested that we do this as a possible good idea. He's actually commanded it that you and I, his people, give as we are able to support those who labor in the gospel. So how do you see your part in this? Do you see financially supporting gospel workers as something that involves you? Do you so love the gospel that you would happily give to those who have committed their lives to proclaiming it at church, at university, on the mission field, in other missional contexts? This is a question I have to ask myself. Do I so love the message that Jesus died for me and rose again that I would give to others in different contexts and ministries in order that they might keep preaching it to other people? The fact that a number of gospel workers are able to serve here at Bundy is a wonderful testimony to God's work in the lives of his people here. And as a gospel worker, I'm very thankful as I'm sure other pastors and workers are. But not everyone who comes to church can actually, does actually have the capacity to give financially. I know there are some of you who simply can't afford to do so, and that is okay. But if you do have the capacity, let me encourage you to keep honouring Jesus in this way. And let me encourage you not to forget those who minister among people groups 
who actually simply can't afford to support that worker. I'm thinking of some of our missionaries in poor places. I'm thinking of our university workers. See, they don't actually get a living unless people mostly from outside their mission field actually support them. Do we remember them also? Uh, I remember benefiting greatly from uh, the ministry of the university gospel workers at La Trobe Uni when I was a student there. But when I was a student there, I had very little money, and honestly, I wouldn't have even thought about giving to anyone, truth be told. But after I got my first kind of real job, I actually remember being convicted by passages like this, that it was actually right to support those who had for three to four years previously sown spiritual things for me, as Paul says. Verse 11 who day after day had discipled me, encouraged me in my faith. It was actually kind of right that they should now reap a material benefit from me, again to use Paul's language. This isn't because the gospel ultimately comes with a price tag, but simply because it's right for gospel workers to receive a living from their labor. It's good and loving to the worker and their family but ultimately it's good for the unsaved student who is still yet to hear the gospel, believe in Jesus, and receive eternal life. Well, we've seen uh, Paul show us why he was entitled to the right to provision and ministry, but now I I want to think through his refusal at the end to make use of that right. Because that's actually the real twist of this passage, and that's what we're going to consider now. Paul's rights relinquished. In our culture, I think most people consider it totally crazy to kind of give up your right or your entitlement in anything. We see this in the kind of the bigger areas of life. Who would dream of saying to your employer, well, don't worry about paying me for the next few months. It's okay. No, we did the work. We're entitled to the pay. Uh, Most of us aren't going to refuse a Centrelink benefit when we have the right to use it. We meet the eligibility requirements, we're entitled to receive the support. Most of us aren't going to refuse a seniors card when we get there. No, we're over 60, we're working less than 35 hours a week, it's our right to use that. And most of us, let's be honest, in the smaller things, aren't going to refuse peel to play if we win something in that. No. Um, We've pulled off a cheeseburger, and it's our right to cash that in. That's what my growth group teaches me anyway. (laughs) See, most of us go through life using, not refusing, the things that we're entitled to, big and small. And much of the time, there is absolutely nothing wrong with making use of our rights. In fact, often it's very wise and helpful to do so, isn't it? So why does Paul here then so willingly relinquish, let go of his major right to be materially and financially supported in in his gospel ministry and actually instead go work another job to support himself. Why would he do that? He tells us in verse 12, uh, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything, 
rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Uh, We know from Acts chapter 18 that Paul worked as a tent maker or a leather worker in Corinth, and he uses the phrase put up with anything attached to that kind of idea of him working because actually he would have had to put up with anything in a job like that. Uh, Get rid of all romantic notions about tent making. It was actually a pretty gross job. Not only was working with leather in the ancient world kind of foul-smelling, it was physically exhausting. It had social stigma attached to it uh, because of its kind of manual labor connotations. Um, But it was also probably getting done in the evenings when Paul wasn't ministering the gospel to people. He was working the night shift in this job. So why would Paul forsake his right to provision and put up with that lifestyle because he didn't want to hinder the gospel of Christ. That wonderful message that tells an unbelieving world that Jesus died and rose again to bring forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He didn't want anything to get in the way of that message to the world of Corinth. Paul did not want his preaching of that message to be associated with the traveling philosophers and orators of his day, people infamous for spinning good stories, gathering a few disciples, and then fleecing them in the process. Paul didn't want anyone thinking that somehow his gospel message was just another sort of crafty means to make money. See, if the messenger in view is viewed with skepticism often the message will be viewed with skepticism too. Now, it's like the TV evangelist that has the Donate Now button constantly on the screen. Most of our society kind of looks at that and wants nothing to do with him or his message, whatever he's saying. And that's why Paul worked to support himself. He wanted no confusion about his agenda. As verse 18 states, his gospel was offered free of charge, no strings attached. You don't have to pay to hear about Jesus, just like you don't have to pay to receive the forgiveness and the life that he offers you. And you can almost sort of picture Paul in his kind of daily routine in Corinth. I kind of imagine him, you know, getting up after a few hours of sleep, trying to wash off some of the smell from last night's night shift, trudging his way down to the public square, and then he's back on deck again for the gospel, engaging maybe a bit sleepy-eyed in conversations with all sorts of people about Jesus. He endured that lifestyle because he loved the lost people of Corinth, and he did not want anything that might hinder them from coming to know the true and living God. See, we look at that and think, man, that sounds like hard work. Man, that would just be hard, bad. But you see, for Paul, it was actually his joy. It was his joy to give up his rights in order to offer the gospel free of charge. Weirdly, you might think, it actually gave him delight, he says. And that's what he reminds the Corinthians. He's not telling them all this to kind of guilt them into supporting him now, as verse 15 makes clear. That would be actually the opposite of what he wants. That would deprive him, he says, of his his boast, his delight, his reward. 
He sort of gets to that in verse 16. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I simply, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my full rights as a preacher of the gospel. See, Paul was actually compelled to preach the gospel out of obedience to Christ. We thought about that earlier. But he wasn't compelled to give up his entitlement to a living as a preacher. He wasn't compelled to work a second job. That was something he chose to do himself out of love for others and in service to Christ, who, knew, who he knew had given up so much more for him at the cross. And you see, when you truly get what Jesus has done for you, you actually start to find genuine delight in letting go of your personal rights for the sake of other people's salvation. That's something that kind of happens as you start to appreciate Jesus more. You might have noticed it in your own life. Uh, every Wednesday, there are a few retired people that I'm from the morning service who come into our building here to help with clean up and pack up after our mainly music program, which is a kind of mums and bubs program where mothers can invite and meet other mothers, mothers from the community. Uh, and these retirees come in so that they can actually free up the Christian mums to have conversations and hopefully maybe gospel conversations with some of the other mums from the community. Um, the retirees are making sure they're not busy with, the mums aren't busy with cleanup, they can be freed up. Uh, I actually saw one of these men come in last Wednesday because we have our staff meeting at the same time. And I always notice whenever I see him come in, he's always got this smile on his face. He's always happy to be here helping. But see, just see what the, just think about what the world says to a retiree. You've worked hard for decades. You have the right to put your feet up, invest in your own pursuits, travel, take life easy. But like Paul, this particular guy that I think of and the others, they know that the joy of giving up their rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the possibility that other people might hear about Jesus, believe in him, receive eternal life. And so he comes in on Wednesdays and vacuums, cleans toilets, wipes down benches, it's a lovely kind of picture, isn't it? But the truth is that this man and Paul that we see in this passage, they are but shadows of the Lord Jesus who shows us the ultimate picture of self-denial for the sake of others. You see, throughout the gospel, Jesus chooses repeatedly to give up his rights in order to bring salvation to an undeserving world. There is this amazing moment in the gospels where Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas. Uh, a mob comes out to arrest him and then to kill him. And in that moment, Jesus actually had every right to use his divine power and wipe his enemies off the face of the earth in this awesome display of justice. And you almost start rooting for that to happen as you're reading the gospel because you love Jesus so much and you think this is wrong. 
And in fact, Jesus says as much to Peter uh, in Matthew 26. Uh, he says, Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? You see what Jesus is saying? I, I could use my rights and call down an army and just wipe these guys out. But Jesus didn't use his rights in that moment, did he? He didn't call down those 12 legions of, legions of angels. Instead, he went with that mob, allowed them to mock him, beat him, crucify him. He relinquished his rights so that, that our sin, our mob-like rebellion against God, could be forgiven through his substitutionary death for us, his death in our place. You see, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, my encouragement to you is to get to know that Jesus, the true Jesus. Get to know the one who did that for you. Our Christianity Explored course starts this Tuesday night, as Andrew mentioned. Why not actually come along and join us there to find out more about that Jesus? But for those of you who are Christians, as we come to a close, where might you start to find your joy, your reward, in denying yourself for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others who are yet to know Jesus? See, like Paul, it's actually good for us, for those of us in gospel ministry, uh, to do a bit of thinking about how this might apply to us. How could we lay down our rights, uh, like Paul as a gospel minister, for the sake of the gospel? Uh, and there are times when it may be really helpful for a minister or preacher of the gospel not to accept any money or provision following gospel ministry. You know, maybe it's a, a wedding for a relative who's not yet a Christian. Maybe it's a funeral for someone who isn't a Christian in the wider community. Those are actually really good moments to co just connect with people, to share the gospel in the sermon without any other kind of perceived strings attached. Like Paul, we don't want to actually confuse the agenda and we want the gospel offer to go out free of charge. But each of us needs to make a call on what we do with that in our own heart. But what about the rest of you? How uh, could joyful self-denial for the sake of the lost become more a part of your life, more a part of our community here together even, Right? See, we're going to think next week in more depth about um, what that looks like to the kind of outside world, becoming all things to all people. But I just thought I'd highlight one thing for you to think about tonight. You know, almost every week we have people who are not yet Christian among us. And if you're one of them, glad to have you with us. We absolutely love that you're here. And look, in many ways, um, those of you who are Christians are free to relate to all people on whatever terms you like, obviously not sinfully, um, but you are. You're free to hang out with them, with people. You're free to go to the movies with whoever you like. Uh, you're free to stick around. You're free to stick to conversational topics that aren't overtly gospel-related. You're free to stick to topics that are safe, and of mutual interest. You're free to do that, and that's actually fine to do because we want our relationships to be genuine, real. But I suspect that those who are not yet Christian here among us may be more interested in talking about Jesus than perhaps you think as a Christian. 
But actually, that often requires a bit of energy, thoughtfulness, perhaps prayer about saying things that are helpful. It requires us to give up aspects of comfort and ease for the sake of bringing Jesus into more of our conversations. But you see, like Paul, there's actually real delight in enduring all those things if it means someone is able to better know Jesus and perhaps find genuine life in him. And maybe you've experienced this, the joy of arriving home from church thinking, that was such a wonderful conversation about Jesus I had with that person. It might have required a bit of energy and thoughtfulness, but you know it gives you joy. You know that gives you delight, reward. And my prayer is that, like Paul, we will say, what then is my reward? To preach the gospel and to offer it free of charge and not make full use of my rights. I'm going to pray to that end now. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, thank you for your word tonight. Help us to put it into practice. Uh, Where we have capacity, move us to see the value of gospel ministry and give to support those who minister in the gospel. And Father, as we've thought about our rights, help us to be like the Lord Jesus who out of self-denying love thought of the salvation of others before himself. May we do that with each other and with those particularly, Father, who do not yet know you. Help us to think how we could deny ourselves more in order to bring the gospel into their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.